This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, alaikum. I have two beautiful wahine today to talk about something really important that's happening right now um, and we're not talking about it enough um, here in Aotearoa and I will love to start this corridor by opening up the space and letting um, you two lovely ladies introduce yourselves. So who are you, what people, communities, lands are important to you? Um, I'll open up the floor. Oh, I go first. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Um, I'm Samira and I'm uh, originally from Iran and I moved, um, I left country around 2009 and I always said that I physically left country, but my heart my mind is all the time always there. Sometimes I feel that it's not really good to have all my mind be there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's my connection. And um, a bit about me, I also, I've been a women's rights, uh, children's rights advocate um, um, since many years ago. And actually, I always like to be in this field uh, since I've been in high school, actually, last year of high school. Uh, because I had a mom that all the time talking about women's rights and we had lots of always women's magazines at home. So my dream was to become a human rights lawyer. But then I found that it's not easy to be a human rights lawyer in Iran. So I start study political uh, politics, political science, politics, international relation and finish my master there in Iran. But then I couldn't f- work on the project that I wanted. So I moved to Sweden I finished another master about women's empowerment and uh, and the typology of the states. And then moving to New Zealand, another project, my PhD project about women's uh, civil society activism. I think that's me. And I'm currently working as a family violence trainer and educator. And for years in New Zealand, I've been mainly working in the field of family violence from frontline to now education. Oh, kia ora, Samira. Thank you. Thank you. I pass that to Fru. Thank you. Kia ora, everyone. I'm Fru, and like Samira, I'm from Iran. I came to New Zealand in 2015. Back in Iran, uh, I I always was uh, inspired and interested in, in politics and in social activism, but I never fulfilled that dream, actually, until recently. So I did... Uh, a bachelor and then a master in English and in uh, teaching English in Iran. And I was teaching at university in Iran for like 11 years. And then in 2015, when I came here, I started doing a PhD uh, and again in language and communication. But as I've always been, you know, uh, very passionate about, you know, what's going on in societies, the media and the politics, the topic that I chose to work on both for my master thesis and Uh, for the PhD thesis was about the media work and how they cover the political issues or international 
issues around the world and how they respond to them. So I work on the critical discourse analysis of US media for my PhD uh, project. And after finishing PhD, actually, I didn't go back to academia. So I left there and started working uh, and being involved within the community. And it was because of some, you know, personal journey that I went through and I realized that the area that I can make the change that I've always been dreaming about was uh, women and working for women's rights. So in 2020, I started Iranian Women in New Zealand as a charitable trust. So this is a young community organization. And what we are doing is trying to promote gender equality and raising awareness about women's uh, rights through all the activities and programs that we have. And one of them is having Samira as a family violence trainers for the community. So our programs are mostly for Farsi speaking women, mainly Iranian and also some Afghan women here in New Zealand. Yeah, and this is me. Oh, well, what a beautiful introduction. I think it. I feel quite empowered right now, just sitting here and then listening you talk to kind of your life journey and seeing how heavily influenced it's been by your passion for women's rights. And um, it's so interesting that you've both gone through um, the academic world, but now you're here and you're doing direct work with the community. And I think it's so wonderful that learned and educated women like yourselves are out here making that real change in the community because sometimes I feel like there's this disconnect between the real world and the academic world but just even hearing how you've introduced yourselves you're creating that direct link and I think that's so wonderful um so today I've asked you to be on the show because I really want to talk about what's happening in Iran at the moment. Um, but before we talk about what's happening right now in 2022, um, would it be all right if um, you help me rewind time and then go back to the 1970s because there was a lot happening back then. And then in 1979 was the formation of the Islamic Republic. And yeah, I just would love to know from your history and experience um, and understanding what it was like in the 70s um, and how that kind of led to what's happening now. I, I go first again. Okay. <laughs> I can go first. Um, I think that that's a great question. I'm so happy that you asked this question uh, because uh, these days, even uh, that's good. All, um, even people talk about the um, uh, wave of protest now in 2022 in Iran. Uh, but for some people, they think that it just came out of nothing. Uh, so they don't know about the context. Or uh, I don't know if you heard, but actually even among Iranians, uh, most of the time uh, we hear that like Iranians saying that, oh, back days, back before the Islamic Revolution, it was great. It was amazing. Everything was good. We need to go back to that time. And I just said, oh, my God, no, you know, that's good. You remember the history. That's good to be proud of your history as well. But history and the past should be like a light to lighten up our ways and more, you know, these um, pathways towards the better future. We need to learn from the history. We need to learn from the past. Those are learning, huh? So uh, unlearn what we learn, which is which was not good, and have, make a better future. 
So this is important. That's why I'm really happy that you asked this question because we need to know what was actually in 1970s. If it was that perfect, uh, then why we had a revolution? Hmm? So mm. um, uh, I, I wasn't born there. <laughs> so I'll just let you know, I'm not that old. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, because of my major, because of the work, and again, my passion, and always my mom and dad actually have been uh, very political all the time, talking about politics and history. Um, uh, my dad, uh, very kind of uh, close to the um, uh, kind of leftist ideals that time, back before Islamic Revolution, and my mom, uh, a secular nationalist person. Um, anyway... Uh, but if you don't know, we have actually, even before 1970s, so we had first um, Pahlavi era, that was our monarchy, um, we had monarchy, and then second Pahlavi era. So when you ask about 1970s, I'm only focusing on that second Pahlavi era. So because these days, maybe some people are talking about all days in history, we had a, poly, a, a rule that forcing women to not to have hijab. So that, that those things goes back to the first era of Pahlavi era, not the second Pahlavi era. So the second Pahlavi era, actually we had some good uh, steps. We had some good development, mainly economic, social development. But um, these, uh, during this Pahlavi era, some women's rights uh, kind of handed down from like, but it was really like top down, development process and but yes good things was around uh family law good changes in terms of family law limitation of polygamy a uh, minimum age of the uh, marriage for girls um or divorce law the rights for divorce for women so there was some good um and uh, some good development but uh, second Pahlavi era had top down development process and policies so the good things was it increased women's visibility in a, in the society in the community or as well as being say you know the women able to speak up they you know being spoken and talking about the issues so we had kind of good visibility of women who can talk also about the issues in this for women but being visible or speaking doesn't necessarily mean that it itself eliminate exclusion and mar marginalization. So this top-down policy, uh, this top-down, you know, the development was around mainly. So, um, uh, what I can call it, you know, some women had visible and audible presence, but they did not necessarily have power to make difference. So sometimes mm. I said, you know, it's good in terms of redistribution, access to resources, recognition, recognizing, you know, recognition of your rights as women and speak. But we have one, uh, another part which is important uh, is representation in terms of political, you know, I'm talking about the political view. So representation and having power to make difference. This was not really exist that time. So we had a kind of a group of women had visibility, a group of women could talk about the issues, but also not having the power huh, to make changes. A kind of uh, policing then that control and manipulated the women's visibility to their own advantage that time. Uh, so this kind of discourse not only 
sanction and encourage the exclusion of some of the groups of women, but also establish a hierarchical system that resulted in series of laws and um, kind of, you know, that served to restrict and restrict any kind of independent um, activities, independent, like, you know, again, because unfortunately there was not much political development. So we had, we didn't have easily um, political activity or social, you know, in terms of women's rights, having independent activities. Then they also shut down some of the newspaper organization. We didn't have much, uh, many, actually not many, even political parties that time. So this situation, because of this situation, on the other hand, the counter-hegemonic discourses contested this kind of uh, modernized, westernized modernization uh, process. Those times we had leftists, we had Islamic groups that they come and introduce an anti-western discourse that offer alternative interpretation of women's issues and also kind of um, anti-western imperialism and return to indigeneity. It, they, in, they criticize the western model for Iranian women that was promoted by the Pahlavi, second Pahlavi states, emphasizing an authentic gender identity defined by women's um, uh, rights. Uh, so they challenged that um, Western kind of, you know, uh, because it was very Westernized, it was top down. So it was good, but it was top down. It was mainly social, economic. It was not political development. The other power groups, they challenged it. But now what happened after the revolution is a, another topic because after revolution, technically Islamist groups, they kind of exploit the uh, revolution and completely they change the direction of revolution and it went where it shouldn't go. Uh, so we can talk about that later, but this is the context. This is 1970s technically. Wow. What about you, Farouk? Do you have any, um, I think any other thoughts to very add? Well, so there is not much to be added to it. Uh, yeah, as uh, Samira was saying, there was a rapid uh, modernization in Iran during 1960s and 1970s, so the last two decades of uh, uh, Shah era, and it was mainly focusing on industrialization of the country, so westernization of the country and secularism. So it was very important. And what one of the reasons probably that led to this revolution was the Shah uh, neglecting the traditional conservative sectors of the society. So he did not include those parts of the society into you know, uh, the politics. So the political, there was lack of political openness uh, as Samira said, social development, you know, increase in the education of the uh, people in the country, including women, women's rights. Many good things happened, but they were mostly for the upper and, and upper middle class uh, sectors of the society, especially for women. And there was this, this uh, connection between those elite educated people and the majority, the grassroots of the society. And these grassroots were those who were supporting traditionalism and uh, conservative sometimes, you know, interpretation of uh, religion. And this was the thing that Islamic groups in the country could use, you know, to their own benefit, because the revolution happened with two groups, mostly. 
uh, leftists and also religious groups in the society. But because this religious uh, group have much more popularity, you know, within the lower sectors of the society, they were able, you know, to take this revolution for themselves and bring about this uh, Islamic mm. revolution. So yeah. I think that was enough background. Yeah. I think technically, you know, the counter-hegemonic discourse that time, they provided a motivational vocabulary for yeah. mobilizing women from excluded groups. That's that's the mainly, as you said, Rosa, yeah. Just hearing what I'm you sorry, have I just thought that would be good to also let you know that, you know, yeah, there are many different books and um, uh, ideas around what led to Islamic revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I personally uh, like, um, I found these kind of analysis by different amazing, you know, scholars, uh, much closer to that reality you know based on what i also he heard from my parents as well mm -hmm. yeah thank you so much for explaining the context like for me hearing that it just goes to show that there's so many complex identities that are kind of intersecting and playing a role in what happened because if you just kind of look at what's happening in media at the moment it's it's very it's reduced down to a very simple point people like, I think there's a lot of, first of all, there's a lot of confusion about what the protests are about, but it seems as if it's just about religion. I mean, it really isn't. Just hearing what you two are talking about, it's really about the systems or the interactions between the patriarchy and misogyny and, you know, even our, like, different socioeconomic status. You can just see how that all kind of comes together Um and yeah, I feel like that complexity doesn't get necessarily get communicated. Um, and then when you strip it back, it's actually systems that are oppressing everyone worldwide in all countries. And so thank you so much for explaining that context. And so now we're in the 1970s, if we can forward time back to 2022, because this has been going on for many, many decades. There have been people who have left Iran as refugees because they cannot safely be their authentic selves, whether it be religiously or in, in other types of forms. And there have been many protests as well. Um, but I would love to know, in, in your opinion, why do you think the the protests this time around have taken, have just really taken off? And what was the death of uh, Masa Amini that has really sparked this particular wave of protests? Because it just from the research that I've done, it feels very different to the previous protests that have that have happened. Yeah, if I can start. So um, all the revolutions, as we know, they are very complicated phenomena. So we cannot reduce, you know, a revolution or a mass uprising to just one factor like economy, as you said, or religion. So many things need to come together and then, you know, just compile for many years in order to, you know, reach the stage of revolution. And this is uh, also, you know, is the case in Iran. But uh, I think there are many reasons why this time, after the this young girl, you know, the thing changed so rapidly and it led to a mass nationwide uh, protest, uh, is that we have tried different ways in 40 
years in 40, over 40 uh, years. So in 2009, for example, we had another uprising that was mostly from middle class sectors of the society, and it was about uh, political rights. So it happened after the uh, presidential election in that year. Or in 2019, we had another uprising focusing on economic grievances of the society after the rise in the fuel uh, prices. And this time it was the lower class uh, sections of the society mostly involved in that. So I think in the four decades, we, we uh, tried different ways, asking for political reforms, for economic reforms. And in between, for example, in 2017, we have the uh, Guilds of Anglop Street or Revolution Street, you know, it was about women's rights uh, and about, you know, compulsory hijab. So asking for some cultural, social uh, types of reforms in the country. But the time proved that, you know, trying different options in 40 uh, years proved that this system, this regime doesn't seem to want, you know, to make any kind of reform because uh, uh, the regime has uh, built, has created its own identity based on some specific narrow, you know, symbols and ideas. So it's not possible for them to change those. And so they cannot give people any space, you know, for political, social kind of, you know, reform. And also because of this economic corruption that have been going on for many years in the country. So all these things came together. And I think people had enough time to realize that there is no hope for any reform. And after, I think another thing is that this girl was a young, innocent girl who was not a political activist, who was not taking part in any movement. She was just coming from a small town to capital city to spend a few days. And she was just, you know, dead all of a sudden because of few hairs, you know, being out. So it, it was very shocking, I think. Uh, I said in another interview that the absurdity of this situation that you can be killed just for showing off, you know, few strands of hair was came like a shock to the nation. And yeah, it led to this uh, protest, this revolution that has been going on for like three months now. What about you, Samira? Do you have any thoughts to add on to that too? Um, actually, I'm here. Uh, you know, again, I think I don't want to make it boring about that uh, history, but we, you know, it's again, it's important to know about that context. You know, so uh, for many people saying that, oh, it's all suddenly came out, or it's very different. Actually, you know, in a, uh, I have a, I just published my book in 2021 last year or 2020. Congratulations. So in four <laughs> chapters, I explain how actually women kind of build up, you know, from the beginning of the revolution. So, you know, the Islamic revolution, when they come to the power, when they technically exploit that revolution and they start cleansing policies and everything, um, I think kind of I would might answer the other question that you asked also around that is it about religion or not? So, you know, the Islamic Republic, when they came, they had a very clear doctrine. So they started having a doctrine. What was that doctrine? They said that our politics is the same as uh, something like this. So I'm trying to uh, translate it word to word, but our politics is the is a same as our religion. Our religion is the same as our politics. And if you talk about the separation of politics and religion, it uh, really has uh, serious consequences. 
So when it happens, when they bring the poly the religion into the politics and they just interpretation for their own benefit and interest, political interest, including then that, that constitution. Huh? So they started having a very misogynistic interpretation of Islam, political for political reasons. Then they brought different rules, including that mandatory hijab law. Hmm? And that's why from the beginning of the revolution, Many, a couple of clergies, they stopped supporting Islamic revolution. They, they stand, they said that that's not okay. We shouldn't do this. And then they, they kind of sentenced to house arrest, one of them, for until all these years, you know, for years he was in house arrest. Many religious women who supported Islamic revolution, they become so disillusioned with the revolution, with Islamic Republic, because this is not what we wanted. This is not even our religion. You're ruining our religion even. So actually, the response. So I want to say, you know, that Mahsa Amini's death, for me as an Iranian, was not surprising when it comes to a, like a big demonstration first. Hmm? First. Because you can hardly find any Iranian, even men, that live under Islamic Republic for and never ever being stopped or questioned or arrested by so-called morality police. So when Mahsa Amini died this time, you know, after being arrested by them, it is a collective trauma, I call it. So men people could connect and I'm feeling oh my god it could be me it could be me it could be you huh it could be my sister so it was a collective trauma so that's that's why the first demonstration and protest and uprising against so-called morality police was not a surprise to me okay but the things is it changed to a big plural movement against the whole Islamic Republic then I believe that because, you know, Mahsa's right to put this hijab or not having hijab or having hijab, this is about basic human rights, about her rights on her body, about her freedom of choice, freedom of expression, all these basic rights that has been denied for over 40 years, um, especially subordinated groups, women, ethnic, uh, ethnic and religious minorities. People with disability, LGBTQ, uh, 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 to make it easier, gender diverse communities in uh, uh, in Iran, they are all experiencing this one alongside with the corrupted economic system that result in inequality, in poverty, and so on. So all these years, but what was the response? Why, why I mentioned that beginning the context about Islamic revolution because from the first years of Islamic revolution. There was a response from women. They started their activism. They started having different women's magazines. They started having, again, you know, slowly, slowly, you know, they, they build it. They, they needed to talk about women's rights in a, within Islamic uh, Republic. So they started, um, uh, they, we have the emergence of Islamic feminism in Iran that time. So we have really kind of like a step, a step, a step, a step. They build it up later. We could have uh, other women on board, other women's magazines. We have different campaigns. We have different workshops, different activities. So all those workshops and campaigns, some people say that it was like we lost it because they uh, oppressed that campaign. But actually, no, we made awareness throughout the society. So women's uh, activism technically developed 
under the skin of the societies. And that's why gradually then in 2009, suddenly we see that uh, during these years, actually also women's movement in Iran, they connected themselves to a student movement, later to other movements, to labor movement. So that's why then in 2009, women being the key component of the 2009 movements. So again, we had different, I always say that, you know, they attack, they go to the movement, the government suppress them. They think that it's silent, but it's not. It's like ashes, you know, like um, I call it um, ashes uh, that any time they can, again, fire, you know, it comes out. So again, after 2009, we had later another protest that kind of to economic situation, but we know that there was some other issues as well as economic. Again, they comes out. Again, you, after 2009, women being the key component of most of the protests and things that going on. So again, that's why in 2000, here with Massa Aminis, yes, because years of this activism, so I believe that we, people are try different things, but they didn't, they don't do uprising because they are tired of other ways. I believe that it is another um, chapter of this journeys, of this chain of activism that women had it. And now it's at a very good part. You know what I mean? Like if they start from the step one, now they are a step 10 and they could make a very good public opinion, they could organize public opinion, they could organize uh, coming to the streets. This is amazing for the women's movement. Um, so I think uh, we need to remember that this uprising is not, is not suddenly comes, it's from within a context. This is what I really want to highlight here. Um, I don't see it for me, it's not like, oh, it's different. I think that it's part of that work that they've already started um mm, i just hearing what both of you said it sounds like there's been this momentum building ever since you know decades ago and this momentum is building 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 and Farouk, the point you made about how masa amini's death kind of highlighted the absurdity of the situation and then samira your point about the collective trauma i think all of these things have just really snowballed snowball to see what we're seeing now um and I suppose you've already kind of spoken to it exactly what the protests are about and after hearing you two speak I, I got it clear in my mind this is actually is very much about human rights um and women empowerment um but I've been seeing a lot of misinformation and miscommunication around the protests in so many different angles and I'd love knowing your um your experience and your academic experience as well I'd love to hear your opinions on this but I've just been seeing the miscommunication and misinformation in very particular ways like in one way that I've noticed is um, the reserved language from western media which doesn't highlight the situation as it actually is like at the moment there's 1,500 people who are arrested and you know are on death penalty or were sentenced to to death and um the western media is using very different language and not really calling it for what it is or it seems like the western media is waiting for official statement um and not calling it for what it is which is a genocide 
essentially that's what it is and another way that I see misinformation as well is a lot of Islamophobic comments and you know especially as a Muslim woman living in New Zealand post the Christchurch terrorist attack and I've been seeing a lot of Islamophobic comments it makes me very uncomfortable because I know that I know I understand what the protest is about but because I feel like as a community as a collective we don't have a clear understanding I feel like we might be feeding the wrong monsters in the situation um so I was wondering if you could speak to the misinformation that the western media provides but also if you could speak to the Islamophobic comments um as well uh, about the first part that you said about the 1500 people so the fact is that they have not been sentenced to death yet but okay. the majority of the parliament members of the parliament they have asked for execution of these people they have asked for the maximum sentence for those who have been participating in protests and many of them 1500 of them are in the prison now so they are in the danger of execution and already mm -hmm. one of them have received this death sentence so that's what we as Iranians have been calling and have been asking, you know, to be uh, to be considered by, you know, international agencies working for human rights. And in the case of the second part of your question about Islamophobia, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. And I've always been, you know, sad in the last two, three months, because whenever we have asked for solidarity and support, I personally have felt that because of this kind of misunderstanding about the revolution, this revolution has not received, you know, the support from other, especially communities, ethnic communities here in New Zealand, for example. So what I would like to say is that Iranian people have risen up against a theocracy, a regime that has ruled over them in the name of God, a regime that has justified its power by referring to God, and then has been committing worse crimes on the earth, like execution, like torturing people. So let alone, you know, political corruption, social discrimination, economic pressure that all of them have been uh, brought about by this regime. So in this context, it's not unusual to see that people are opposing all the symbols, all the norms that are associated with this regime. So we know that this regime has built, as I said, its identity based on religion. So when people mm. want to oppose this regime, they say that we don't want you and the way you are using religion, you know, to oppress us. It doesn't mean that we are against religion or Iranians are against religion. Majority of Iranians are Shia Muslim. So that's the religion. It's part of our tradition. You know, it's one component of our culture. It's not the whole culture. One part of that. And it is a personal you know, decision for many Iranians to practice Islam. So Samira knows that all our, you know, many of our parents, grandparents, they are practicing, they are taking fast, they are doing their prayers. So that's the, the reality in Iran. But at this time, under this pressure, when you know, people want to confront this regime, so they go and take off their headscarf, for example, or even put it on fire, it doesn't mean that, you know, they are against the scarf. They are against, you know, imposition, enforcement of the scarf on themselves. So that's the difference. And I think we need the communities to understand this, to understand us, you know. Uh, that's, that's, I think, it's not something surprising, you know, that people are opposing this regime in these specific ways. If it was like, I don't know, anti-religion regime, for example, 
So we would see that as we saw in you know Islamic Revolution in 1979, yeah, many Iranian women who were not wearing hijab, they used to put a scarf because they wanted to confront the Shah regime. You know, it was a symbol of opposing a regime that you know denied sometimes people's right, you know, to practice their religion. So that's I think something normal that's happening now. And it's not that difficult to be understood. Thank you. Thank you, Farouk. I really appreciate that point around, um, especially that understanding, eh? When all of this, if, if you don't have that understanding, I feel like we, people operate with fear, people operate from their biases, and, and you can definitely see that. You can definitely see that. So thank you for bringing up that point around understanding. I really, really appreciated that. Um, what about you, Samira? Your thoughts yeah, on the misinformation? I think misinformation? you had a two question, because one was around <laughs> and one was around, uh, is, is it again Islam or around that uh, Islamophobic comments that we have? You know, as I mentioned, you know, Islamic Republic, when they came, their doctrine was our religion is our politics, our politics is our religion. They started bringing the religion, using it for their political interests, and very misogynistic patriarchal interpretation of Islam. So that's why again, many clergies were against this one. They announced that that's not okay, this is not aligned with our Islamic values, we shouldn't, and then they arrest those, huh? They arrest those people. And uh, even uh, the beginning, the beginning of again women's movement, the re-emergence of women's movement after Islamic Revolution actually started with very religious Iranian women that uh, they try to use kind of language of Islamic Republic, but for the for to be able to, as a form of resistance to be able to uh, um, stop government not completely eliminate women to keep themselves in the society to talk about women's issues and that's why we had the emergence also of islamic feminism so this is the main thing so remember that islamic feminism why if, if islamic republic could have islamic feminist uh, interpretation then for their rights. Why they didn't have it? They didn't want those people because the Islamic feminism is also against misogyny, is against um, discrimination, is against justice, is against uh, injustice, you know? So Islamic Republic don't want. So what I really try to tell people is Islamic Republic is everything but not Islam. <laughs> it's everything not religion. Um, and this is really important, and I believe that actually we need to be very careful, especially we, when I said, as subordinated groups, and uh, particularly women in this context, because we know that patriarchs, they don't like women when they speak up. And that's why I believe that this is actually promoting by the Islamic Republic and their people around the world to say that this is against Islam. You know what I mean? Because they want, they promote this discourse because they want to negatively impact this current women's movement in Iran. And plus, we know that there are many other patriarchs and theocrats in the region, in the Middle East, uh, that they don't want this discourse of women life freedom enters their country because that's also a threat to them. 
you know what I, so the, the, that's why uh, I think never we had amazing Islamic feminists in many of the Islamic countries from in Egypt we had uh, you know and but unfortunately they could never make those that big differences again because that political power because of the patriarchal uh, system in the countries and that's why I believe that this kind of Islamophobic comments around what's going on in Iran is promoting by those patriarchs and Islamic Republic because they don't want solidarity among women. They don't want solidarity among Muslim women at all because that's a threat to patriarchs and theocrats, not only in Iran, everywhere. Western media, I have problem with Western media in general. Because I believe that Western media, you know, always they try to promote a very cliche, victimized picture of Muslim woman and all the time so obsessed with the style of clothing of a Muslim woman. Muslim women have, we have amazing diversity. We have amazing in terms of even uh, thinking, in terms of appearance, you know, we have in some in, in some Muslim uh, people in like African Muslim, very it's the different style of clothing. Iranian Muslim, Af uh, uh, Afghanistan Arab Muslim, that's amazing diversity. But Western media never wanted to show the beauty of diversity or showing if there is any unity within this diversity. They all the time so obsessed with the style of clothing and showing a very victimized and cliche, you know, picture of Muslim women. And that's why I believe that uh, this is one part about uh, Western media. So I think that they don't uh, kind of, they don't have a concern and, you know, heart, you know, connected really to what's going on. That's why maybe they don't properly cover the uh, what's going on in Iran. And plus, unfortunately, I believe that uh, women, people of color, uh, you know, uh, uh, not really sometimes matters to Western media. Uh, to what extent they cover is, uh, things in Afghanistan, in India, in Pakistan. We don't see it that much when you compare, you know, um, with other, if an issue happened in the States or an issue happened in one European country, they cover much better than a situation happening in Middle East. So unfortunately, always I say that um, we need to speak up and say that Middle East matters, people of color matters. Um, so this is my point about Western media. And only add something else about that execution that um, perfectly through clarify that one. But what the, the reason we try to to put um, you know raise awareness about this situation uh, on social media because that's not a super you know that's not that would not be shocking uh, to me kind of not. It, let's say the wording it's not unexpected if the islamic republic execute all of them because in the history of islamic republic i mentioned cleansing policy actually at the beginning of the islamic revolution they had mass execution so they've done it before they can do it they are very capable to do it my gosh i feel like you've both brought up so much um and I've got two questions kind of coming up. So I will go with the first question and then we'll circle back to the other question. But um, 
the idea of feminism you know this protest was started by women led by women and I would love to know from the both of you what your feminism looks like and to further that question what would you say to women who identify as feminists but haven't engaged with what's happening in Iran at the moment um, because that's something that I've also noticed like the not not everyone is speaking up and I understand that you know, to show your solidarity, everyone can do that in different ways. But what would you say to women who do identify as feminists or just anyone actually who identifies as a feminist and hasn't engaged with anything with happening that's that's happening in Iran at the moment? Do you want to start? I talk a lot, sorry. <laughs> you're on oh, mute. you're on mute. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so for me, feminism, it's not something, you know, as some people, you know, put it like, you know, it's something very complicated, you know, for me, it's just awareness about the situation of women in the whole world, you know, realizing that women have been discriminated against, have been exploited and have been deprived of the rights, their basic human rights. So first being aware of that and then making an effort, you know, to raise awareness among other women, because I think the main obstacle in the way of achieving equality for us as women, unfortunately, it is ourselves. You know, if we are united, as Samira said, if because whenever I'm talking about women's rights or feminism with our women, for example, in the community, the first reaction I get is that, no, men are nice, men are not like that. Why you are thinking we should just, you know, uh, we should just, you know, become separated from men. They just think that if we say women's rights, it means that we are gonna men's rights from them. So there are many misunderstandings when it comes about, you know, feminism or women's rights. But for me, it is as simple as, you know, being aware and trying to raise awareness and taking some actual steps, you know, towards betterment, promoting the situation of women in, in the whole world. And regarding the second part of your questions, uh, I don't know, you know, in all the interviews that I had on TV, one of my first criticism was, you know, towards feminists around the world and their silence. So it was just like, you know, I, I'm always saying that we Iranian women have been like neglected both by ethnic women that we expected them to standing by ourselves because of the Islamophobic comment that we have received. And we have also been neglected by Western feminism because they are, you know, for me, I think one of the reasons is that they are not sure, you know, how to react to all this, you know, uh, because there is this religion component here that's that's very you know it's a like fine line between you know supporting a revolution like this that people think is about religion and you know supporting women's rights so i think some of this hesitance you know reluctancy to support iranian women is because of that reason of cultural relativism they think no this is their culture this is not something that we can interfere so all those kind of misunderstanding uh, that's that's what I realized, but I think there are more to that. And Samira, to explain. Yeah, I just I know that I'm concerned about the time, Sarah. Sorry, <laughs> so, but I think about uh, you know the fem, um, you know I think it depends on what we mean. You know when uh, you know different people can call themselves feminists, huh? But uh, what type of feminism? First of all, because we have different um, school of thoughts even within the feminism. You know, the if 
considering yeah like the philosophy of feminism and then different school of thoughts they have um uh, but um for me so it's sometimes also personal as well it comes so for me uh i always feel that you know I learned to be kind of feminist because I believe that the first feminist of my life was my mother. Why? Because um, she never being silent about injustice and inequality. I remember that I've been almost, uh, I've been around 9, 10, that's for the first time I was arrested <laughs> by the more so-called morality police. That time we called them Basiji. Uh, and my mom, didn't just stay like silent because my child they arrested my child she she strongly powerfully bravely shouting and calling them you know like she she stand up for the right she speak up you know and this is what she told me she'll teach me you know she taught me that samira you should never ever be silent and also by bringing those magazines all the time bringing those magazines talking to me i remember that for the first time i heard about the issues of uh, you know the uh, the difficult the, all those uh, institutional oppression that are the gender diverse communities facing in iran I heard it first time from my mother when she was reading an article about a, a man who actually wanted to, like, it was the story of a, um, a, person, a transgender person in Iran that really, you know, it was so touching and I still can remember it. So this is, for me, that's, that's feminism from my mom. And then uh, for me, a feminist person is all those mothers and fathers of those people who have been killed and arrested by Islamic Republic and they didn't choose to be silent. They come, they talk about it, they speak up. So mm -hmm. what I want to say, feminism and my feminist values is not to be silent when I see injustice, when I see inequalities. And for me, I cannot talk about feminism and equality and justice without uh, considering that intersection of uh, gender with race, with ethnicity, with immigration, with colonization, impact of colonization. And this is a topic that always I mention, even in my training here in New Zealand, because it matters here as well. So this is my feminism. So I feel that how you can, so no matter from which school of thought, if you're feminist means you are sensitive to injustice, you're sensitive to inequality, then how, how is it possible that something happened? It's clearly about human rights. It's clearly about uh, injustice and you be silent. Then I would say be silent means be complicit. And you make that patriarchs and theocrats more and more powerful. And we need to remember these topics, yeah, really. feminism, uh, it's against gender injustice. And we know that the cause of the violence, technically, gender-based violence, I would say, is uh, misogyny, is patriarchy. We know that feminism, then as a feminist, you have responsibility to fight for justice and fight against white supremacy, against racism, against um, um, uh, misogyny, against patriarchy. And these are the issues that are everywhere, also here in New Zealand. So if one day I don't stand for those injustices, you know, happening in Iran, or for example, that abortion laws, you know, happen, you know, that situation in the States, if I don't stand here against that one, 
that would that can be one day a threat here even in New Zealand who knows because freedom or equality these are very fragile we have responsibility to protect them and uh, then where is that feminist responsibility I would ask them actually um yeah that's that's my answer thank you both for such an enriching definition of feminism I think <laughs> Well, this is in my personal experience, but when the word feminism was first introduced to my life, it was in a very Western context. And I just never saw other women's experience in that. And as I've gotten older, um, I have learned to widen that definition for myself and the way that you both spoke to what feminism means to you. I really resonate with that. And so thank you so much for um, enriching that definition of feminism. I wish I could keep talking to you both forever. I, the, I don't know where the time has gone, but I would love to finish on this one last quick question. And I think it's really important that we finish on this note um, so we can, after listening to this enriching corridor, people can then go out and action. Um, and so how can we best be an ally here in Aotearoa? Because it's gotten to the point where, you know, really serious stuff and really horrifying things well, that have happened, people have died. And, you know, it's gotten to that point where, we need to not just show our solidarity, but practical matters. We need solidarity in that too. So how can people be best be allies here in Aotearoa? So I think uh, there are two different uh, groups that we are talking about. One is those in power, the government, and the other one is the general public. So uh, in terms of, I think the main problem now is the lack of, you know, uh, actual support from uh, the government because uh, the solidarity from people has been really good you know not in just in New Zealand around the world we have seen a huge solidarity you know from ordinary people you know by you know joining us in protests by posting under social media so it's been really good but when it comes to governments and the actual steps they need to take in order uh, you you were talking about uh, uh, performative uh, activism. I think we don't have time, you know, to discuss it more. But the point is that this is an issue that needs to be discussed when it comes uh, to those who have the power to do more. Sometimes the only power I have is to post on my social media, and that's the best thing I can do. But when it comes to the government, just showing solidarity or condemning what's happening is not enough, you know. And the problem here is that, you know, the governments need first to make sure that what they are doing, you know, is not going to be threatening them in any way or it's going to bring them some, you know, interest or it's going to protect their interests. But I think it's not the way that, you know, uh, standing for humanitarian values works. If, you know, your principles, your values in a country, in a democratic, you know, country is protecting human rights, then you should do that. You know, caring about human rights should be your first priority, not about your, you know, keeping your, for example, a trade uh, relationship with a regime that has been killing its own people. For example, in case of New Zealand, the value of the trade between the two countries, Iran and New Zealand, is only three million in a year. It's like nothing, you know, but still New Zealand is reluctant to take any actual step about those trading so that's not what actually we want because what we need from this government is targeted sanctions that's gonna you know target the main 
people, the heads of the regime and those who are affiliated with that. That's going to be a huge step. And then we have this embassy in New Zealand here that's been used by the regime to be spying on its own people and plotting against Iranian people here. That's, that's going to be a threat for the security of the whole New Zealand and all the countries that have Iranian embassies in their countries. So, and also then we have this IRGC in Iran, the Islamic guard in Iran. That's not just a military force in Iran. It's controlling the whole country, both economy and politics of the country. The interesting thing is that about four of the ministers of the this president in power now, Raisi, are members of IRGC. So they are in the politics. They are, you know, head of ministries. And many of them are governors around the, the country, you know, uh, controlling and the administrative things in different provinces of Iran. So it's like everything is in the hand of IRGC. And what we need the governance of the world to do is to include this terrorist organization where it belongs in the list of terrorist organizations. So these are some uh, actual measures that we have been waiting to see from the New Zealand government and also other governments around the world. Oh, thank you for that. I try yeah. to be very quick. <laughs> Thank you for um, highlighting there actually is a difference between, you know, people, you know, people like me and then people who have that power and position and the expectations. Um, and I hope after listening to this, people can feel more empowered and calling out the government um, for their lack of action. What about you, Samira? Me? Okay. You know, um, I really believe in power of people. So, um, that's why, uh, yes, I study politics, international relations, uh, but I'm not really a fan of that level of politics uh, because unfortunately, like it or not, I believe that the reality is those who are in the power, you know, um, they cannot, um, you know, when you are that level of the power, sometimes uh, you might, uh, there is like, you might, even if you believe in some values, but because of some other political interests, you need to kind of compromise it, you know, you just need to leave it or, you know, so um, that's why I really, uh, my expectation is not that high, or I mean, uh, I don't see it, um, you know, people try to show a very nice picture of the politics sometimes, but I believe that uh, it can never ever be that much nice and you know a good word politics at that level when I so I really believe in power of people and also then local politics uh, so um, I don't see solidarity is not a practical action I don't see that solidarity is uh, something uh, is not a big help it's actually a super big help so I believe that you know, these kind of, uh, we see that some um, from, why, uh, you know, they have threats from white supremacy. Why I mean this one? Because some people that side, those uh, extremists on that side, they try to say that, you know, they try to use our uh, movement to uh, support their anti-Islam ideas, huh? So this is a threat. We need to be aware of it as a, um, a public, uh, you know, as a public in the society. On the other side, we have Islamic Republic or people in the side of Islamic Republic, those that side of extremist people that try to say, again, it's on, this is anti-Islam. 
So they use this movement as anti-Islam to again, why they do this one? Why I mentioned this one? Because I believe that these two parts, they are all, get, they feed from misogyny. And they don't want solidarity against misogyny and white supremacy and gender injustice. Huh? So when we get together, that's a threat to them. And that's why I believe that, that solidarity is actually a big step. It's a big message, not only to people in Iran, give them hope, but it's also why, again, it's important Baruch talk about some changes that we want from the government. I believe that if the public gets together, that's solidarity, then that's a public opinion pressure on the politicians. Do you mm. know what I mean? So then mm -hmm. through the local politics, through their MPs and this public opinion, those politicians cannot for it, cannot, you know, close their eyes because this is what the public opinion wants and they need the vote from this public, huh? So they need to then respond. Do you know? So that's why I believe in the power of people and public opinion. And my message actually to all people who are in New Zealand is please, I know that, I know I work with people, I know we deal with serious. Uh, economic issues. We have so many social issues here in New Zealand in terms of not proper access to resources around mental health or, uh, you know, our youth. And uh, unfortunately, these days we hear about different also terrible, uh, uh, you know, um, um, approach to our youth as well, you know, and not only pro providing those resources. I know we have these issues here in New Zealand, but remember, the, when we stand against misogyny, standing with Iranian is technically, you, you can in, reinterpret this situation for your country. When you stand against injustice, you stand against gender injustice, you stand against misogyny, against racism, against what supremacy, these are matters to you as well. These are important. Mm. Um, these are the foundations, you know. Uh, so I, my message is really, please ask them, not as an Iranian, uh, I, the family violence here in this country, the cause of family violence is mainly around gender and impact of colonization. Then we need to stand now, then we can deal with that issues that we have here in New Zealand. Uh, or gender, ethnic gender pay gap these days we hear in New Zealand. So again, if we stand today in solidarity, we can address that issue in our society as well. So this is the main thing. So I believe really solidarity is important. We're getting together public opinion, pressure on politicians to do and to take action. The other things I would say, please remember that this is like kind of trauma, you know, for many people. Immigration comes with a trauma anyway, especially when it's not forced. So I, I always say that I'm still dealing with it, really. I'm trying still maybe in healing journey of that immigration that I don't want. So these days are very difficult for many Iranians. So I think it's really important, knock on the door. If you have a neighbor Iranian, just check on them, text, just a text, just a text, say, what are you doing? You know, I follow the news. It, it must be hard. Just a little empathy really matters. It really matters. Our colleagues, our friends, our neighbors, um, if we are employer, 
being careful around you know developing and support if we can having like flexibility for them or anything any type of well-being support if we are lecturer supervisor just check on our Iranian students because especially I'm really worried about Iranian students I've been a student as well here they are really vulnerable because some of them also financially still very dependent on the country and with this situation it's very hard uh, also the visa situation you know they don't know where they can live really technically um, so I think uh, there are many uncertainty that they deal with that. Um, so yeah, just being kind, we learn it. We learn it during COVID very well. So we, during COVID, we learn to be kind, to have empathy. But also we find that during COVID, we find that freedom is fragile. Then we need to protect it. So mm. I think solidarity again matters. Please care but think about that solidarity and see how you can connect it to the social issues here in New Zealand. Mm, yeah thank you so much for highlighting the connection between I don't know because I feel like here especially living all the way in Aotearoa is literally at the bottom of the world and I think sometimes we think about our forget about the connection that we have with other people but it's not just about what's happening in Iran it's about all of us and all of the struggles that we're facing you're so right those those same systems are here, Iran, everywhere in the world. Um, and thank you for reminding us the power of just showing that solidarity as well. Um, thank you both so, 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 so much for your vulnerability, for your honesty, um, for your willingness to have this conversation with me. I've learned so much the past hour and thank you so much. I just, I cannot thank you enough. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Thank, thank you. you for giving us this opportunity to share what we think and actually some of the facts about what's happening in Iran. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.